Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. We're going to be in verses 38 to 42 this morning. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. As you turn there, if you could join with me in a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, as we seek to understand Your Word and to hear from You through Your Word, I pray that You would give us insight and wisdom illumination into this text to help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, January 27th, 2011, a day that will live in infamy, Al from Dadeville called into the Paul Feinbaum show and claimed responsibility for dumping poisonous herbicide on Auburn's famous Tumor Oaks. The trees are a part of an Auburn tradition that included rolling them with toilet paper every time they had a victory, which wasn't that often, so just so you know. Uh, (laughs) And later, we learned that Al from Dadeville was really Harvey Almore Updike. And on the phone call uh, to the radio show, he confessed to years of resentment, of pent-up frustration, to what he felt like were injustices uh, from, uh, from Auburn students over the past years toward uh, the University of Alabama. Most recently, of course, was placing the Cam Newton jersey on the Bear Bryant statue outside of Bryant-Denny. Harvey Updike was arrested and sentenced to three years in prison. Now, I tell that story not to rile anyone up, all right? Believe it or not. We have fans in here from different universities. We have fans in here from Auburn. We have fans, obviously, of the University of Alabama, of Mississippi State. I know uh, our, the chairman of our deacons would, would hate it if I didn't mention Mississippi State. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> we have fans of all stripes. Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither tiger nor tide, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, though we are not all national champions. I just want to put that out there. I just want to to say that. We don't get everything, okay? I mean, we get a lot, but not everything. In all seriousness, the reason that I tell that story is because as you think about that story, your first reaction probably, your, you know, your extra super holy reaction, all right, is, I can't believe that an individual would do that. I can't somebody, believe somebody would, would go to that Lake Jersey on a statue. Just, that doesn't make sense. But if we're honest... Our second reaction, our far less holy reaction, our extra super sinful reaction is probably something like, I get it. I I get it. I can understand where he's coming from. Have you ever felt that feeling inside? Where you're the butt of someone else's joke? Where you're being the one that's scammed? You're the one that's being scammed? And you just get that feeling of rage followed by that feeling of joy at the thought of this person getting what's coming to them. Have you ever been in that situation? Surely you have. 
How about your political opponents? You ever watched the news and thought to yourself, man, I hope they really do get what's coming to them. We've all been there. We've all thought that Harvey Updike may have gone much further than any of us would ever go, but the sentiment behind his actions, what drove him to that point, is something that every last one of us in this room has felt before. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to address retaliation, but he's going to do it in a way that really demonstrates the character, the heart-level attitude that should characterize a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So with that, let's look at our text in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This morning is is going to be a little bit different than probably what we're used to. There's one main point that Jesus makes, followed by four illustrations that he gives of that point. And so our, our sermon, the sermon this morning, is basically going to be one main point and four Subpoints. So it's better than a pointless sermon, I suppose. But one main point and four subpoints. The old jokes are the best, I think. Um, the first main point that we see driven home in the text is that personal retaliation is not fitting for a heavenly citizen. Personal retaliation is not fitting for a heavenly citizen. Look at verses 38 and 39, the first part of 39. You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, this passage that we're looking at this morning is obviously not without its difficulties. This passage, from which we get the expression, go the extra mile, has been used to justify just about every form of pacifism imaginable. Looking at this text right here. Martin Luther cites someone he calls the crazy saint who let lice nibble at him and refused to kill any of them because he had to suffer and could not resist the evil one. Most recently, it led one pastor to conclude very publicly that if someone were assaulting his wife, quote, I do not know what I would do before this situation presents itself with all its innumerable variations of factors. I use those examples not to make light of the argument for pacifism, but to say that it's passages like these that cause many to think very deeply about how we as Christians should respond in the world that's filled with evil, how we should respond to evil people that are doing evil things. And to be quite honest, I want to do whatever the Bible, whatever direction the Bible points. I want to go that direction. If in the end the Bible commands pacifism, then I want to go that direction and I want to exhort you to be the same same way. And I say that to you as being a native of Texas where we're born with our concealed carry permits stapled to our, our birth certificate. 
I mean, he's practically given a gun out of the womb. <laughs> so correctly in interpreting this passage is, is like walking down a road, where you, a, a rather narrow road, where you have a large ditch on either side. On the one side, we could advocate for such extreme pacifism that we would not even call the cops if we witnessed a crime because we could not resist the one who is evil. And on the other side, we have the ditch where that says, well, there's so much context in this passage that Jesus really doesn't mean what he says here. So this really doesn't really apply to us um, Second Amendment loving, gun-toting, red-blooded Americans, does it? The trick is, as always, to advocate for exactly what Jesus says. Nothing more and nothing less. But in the end, there will always be debate of this kind, particularly around this text. And depending on which side of the road you prefer to walk on, you're always going to look at the person that doesn't interpret it exactly like you and say, he either goes too far or he doesn't go far enough. So with that being said, we're going to try to walk down the middle of the road this morning, which all that means is usually I'm going to make everybody mad. Uh, So Jesus begins in the text this morning and he says, uh, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now he's given this general quotation from the Old Testament. It comes from Deuteronomy 19.21 and there's a couple others similar to it. Deuteronomy 19.21 says, Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now this is more commonly referred to as uh, the law of retaliation. What governs our retaliatory ability in the Old Testament. This is what that's typically referred to. Remember the Old Testament law not only governs how sinful Israel could worship a holy God, but also how they could live with one another. How could you as sinful people actually live together with one another? Uh, The context of this law is held within the Jewish or the Israeli court systems. So this would be a section of law commonly referred to as the civil law. Something that would govern parts of of how a, a judge would adjudicate civil cases that are coming before him for the Israelites. According to the law, as similar as we would do it today, the punishment was to fit the crime. Exactly, in fact. And this is the reason why in Deuteronomy, in that same passage I just read, Deuteronomy 19.21, he begins with, Your eye shall not pity. He tells them that because he's talking to judges who are going to deliberate on these cases, who are going to adjudicate these cases. They're going to decide who is right and wrong in these cases. He's saying don't withhold the death penalty just because you feel sorry for somebody. If he took the man's life, he gets the death penalty. It's life for life. It's eye for eye. It's tooth for tooth. But do you notice a change in what Jesus says here? He says, you have heard it was said an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I say to you, I say to you, do not resist the, the one who is evil. What's the crowd that he's standing in front of? Is it judges? Is he talking to judges here? This is, this is how you should actually adjudicate cases now. 
in the New Testament now that I'm here? No. These are ordinary people. These are you and me. Uh, Presumably, the disciples are even standing there with him as well, listening to this sermon. See, there's been a transition in Jewish life in the first century where, where Jesus is preaching and ministering, where the law of retaliation has been taken into the hands of ordinary men and taken out of the court system. And it seems pretty easy enough to follow. If you knock out my tooth as my neighbor, well, then what am I going to do? I'm going to take an awl and a hammer, and I'm going to knock out your tooth as well. Because it's eye for eye, it's tooth for tooth. There is uh, just retribution, in other words. And it's up for the individual to determine what that retribution should be. Jesus is correcting that line of reasoning, that way of thinking for the citizen of his kingdom. He says, you don't live in this way. That's not the way that you live. You don't retaliate in this manner. In fact, he says, you do not resist the one who is evil. I think it's easy to see, if you were to read that, where a pacifist can use this passage to advocate for his position. I'm not making light of that at all. I can honestly see where they would argue that that's what Jesus is saying. But I would say a couple of things about that that I think should be considered. First, obviously it doesn't mean that you can't resist the evil person in any way whatsoever. At least not if the rest of Scripture has any say in the matter. Remember, Romans, uh, Paul tells us in Romans 13, 4, that the police or the, the, president of the, the president of the land, or the king of the land, the ruler of the land, he's talking about the governing authorities. He says they're a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And Peter also tells us in 1 Peter 2, 14, that governors are sent by him, to, that is God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So I think that at the very least, we can all agree that a form of resistance you can provide is turning the offender over to the authorities, to the police. That's what they're there to do. That is their purpose. That is the expectation that they're to be used in that capacity. And they're given that capacity by God. But then we're also clearly commanded to defend the defenseless. Proverbs 24.11 tells us to rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Bruce Waltke says about that verse, he says this, quote, In whatever way or in whatever place the lawless pervert justice, the disciple must show his mettle and intervene and not act cowardly nor ignore or pass by the wrongdoing. So I don't think it logically follows, taking into account the the whole counsel of Scripture, that if someone breaks into your home and puts a knife to your daughter's throat, that you can't use force, even lethal force, if necessary, to subdue the intruder. I don't think that logically follows with the rest of Scripture. So when the context of this passage is considered, and when you consider the, the law that Jesus is bringing to bear here, he's primarily dealing with seeking retribution for an injustice that you have suffered at the someone else's hand. Now, we could spend forever dealing with a bunch of what-if scenarios. What if this? What if that? What if this? And never actually get to what Jesus is 
saying. And for the most part, we'd be dealing with things that most of us in this room are never going to encounter. And not actually talk about the 99.99999% of the rest of our life where this passage is extremely convicting. Okay? So Jesus is going to give us four scenarios, four illustrations of what he's talking about. And he gives them to us in verses 39 through 42. And they show us the kind of temperament that's expected for a child who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And then it's going to be incumbent on us to ask, is this how I respond when I feel as though I'm wronged? Is this how I respond the way Jesus commands me to? So we're going to go through these illustrations and I'm going to apply it along the way. So the first uh, that he lists there, personal retaliation is not fitting for us in spite of insult. Personal retaliation is not fitting for us in spite of insult. Look at verse 39, the last part of 39. But if, some, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So the first illustration that Jesus gives is, is one of public insult. Now this might be a bit difficult for us to, to imagine because the scene that Jesus depicts here looks like what we would describe as an assault. Someone just assaulted another person. When, in my mind, when I read that verse, it sounds like somebody just decks the guy right across the face and takes off with his wallet or something. right? Like That's not the idea that's going on in this passage. This is a, a public insult. See, Jesus is pretty clear when he says that he slaps you on the what cheek? The right cheek. He's specific. It's slapping you on the right cheek. The right hand is the hand of honor, the hand of power. So to sit at someone's right hand like Jesus sits at God's right hand or like, like the, some of the disciples asked to sit at Jesus' right hand. To sit at the right hand is an honorable position. The right hand is, is the hand of power. It's the hand of action. It's the hand that you do something with. Now, a strike to the cheek, a slap to the cheek, is a public embarrassment. They're ashamed of your theology or maybe your actions. Or we see Paul getting striked on the cheek in Acts for what he says that he believes. We see a lot of these things happen throughout Scripture. So a strike to the cheek is a personal insult, and it typically happens in public. But now if you're going to take your right hand and you're going to smack the person on their right cheek, how do you have to do it? With the back of your hand. This is an extra double insult. So the public insult here is grievous. Somebody is really trying to insult you. You're not even worthy of the palm of my hand. I'm going to slap you with the back of my hand. You can imagine how insulting that is. Even in our day, I think we get that. Now, why would Jesus need to tell the people listening to him in the crowd that when you're insulted, turn the other cheek? Do you remember how the Beatitudes end? Remember, Jesus is, is laying out the character profile of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And there in verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Remember, there is, there is an expectation that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be insulted, you're going to be reviled, you're going to be shamed on account of your faith. He's, he's telling them that's going to happen. He's even going to talk about persecution in just a few verses in verse 44. We'll get to it next time. How are you to respond? By turning the other cheek. 
not responding to public insult. So what is your reaction when you're the subject of ridicule? How do you respond to offense? Perhaps it's not so overt as someone just offending you. Maybe you're simply not respected at home, at work. Maybe it's difficult to get others' respect. About being misunderstood. Maybe you're looked over for the promotion, not given due credit for your work. Shafted on that sale, didn't quite come your way. You thought it would, but it didn't. How do you respond? Maybe you're criticized when something wasn't your fault. Or maybe you were one of many, but you took the, the brunt force. How do you respond then? Do you look for ways to get back when you've been given the shaft? Do you set people up to feel your wrath? They will rue the day when they did that to me. Do you become despondent and extra critical maybe of every aspect of their actions? Do you get depressed or mopey when you didn't get your way? Is your motivation to make people see the error of their ways? I'm going to make you pay for that. All of these are manipulative attempts at getting revenge. And Jesus is saying that none of these are consistent with living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of a sinful world. Second, personal retaliation is not fitting for us in spite of your legal rights. In spite of your legal rights. Look at verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him, let him have your cloak as well. Uh, this needs to, so a, a lot of uh, cultural translation to understand uh, this one because we don't speak in these, in these terms, in terms of the, the clothing here. We don't use those anymore, obviously. For the tunic, imagine a shirt. So it's, it's not an undergarment, it's an outer garment, but it's still worn close to the skin. So imagine a shirt that hangs down probably about to mid-calf or so. For the cloak, think of a coat that goes on top of that to keep you warm. It's the outer garment that, that basically keeps you warm. Now, the cloak would double as a sleeping blanket. So it would be long, it would be heavy, and in the night when you're cold, that would be something that you would cover up with. In fact, in the law, in Exodus twenty two twenty six, God mentions the cloak. It's, it's an important article of clothing. And He says this, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak, the coat, right, in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear him, for I am compassionate. The implication being you'll be in trouble, right, for taking his cloak and keeping it overnight. So the picture that Jesus is painting here is probably something like this. You as the Christian, as the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you are a poor person and you've borrowed money from this really rich lender. And the lender has sued you to get his money back. And that may be because your clothing is valuable enough 
to offset the cost of what he borrowed from you, or you borrowed from him, or he's holding it as collateral until you pay him back. This isn't something that would appear that the rich person is really entitled by the law to do, to take a man's clothes. He could have the man's cloak for the day and then give it back to him. But there's no, we don't see anything like, like taking the Christian's clothes and just stripping him bare right there. Uh, it's not something that he would be entitled to do. But for whatever reason, the courts have ruled in his favor and have given the clothes of the Christian to this man, let's say. How is this person to respond according to Jesus? Give him the coat too. Let him have everything. That means that the borrower, the, the poor man, the Christ follower in our case, is sleeping out in the cold with no shirt and no blanket to cover up with. Now, the picture that Jesus is bringing to mind, I realize it's a lot of translation into cultural language, but the picture that, that Jesus is, is bringing to mind is giving up something that you are legally entitled to in order to avoid conflict. That's the purpose. You're giving up something that you're legally entitled to in order to avoid conflict. Now, things probably come up like this a lot more than we initially think they do. Particularly if you own a home, you share a boundary with your neighbor. You share a boundary line with your neighbor. And all kinds of things can come up as a result of sharing a boundary line with your neighbor. At the previous house we uh, lived in, we lived there for about seven years or so. And I shared, our property line shared a retaining wall with my neighbor next door. And, and that retaining wall was really holding up my house. So my house was built higher on higher ground. The retaining wall was 50-50, ours. But in, in the case that that retaining wall came down, I was the only one that was going to lose anything there. <laughs> my house was just kind of slip sliding away, right? Uh, the old Simon and Garfunkel tune, just be gone, right? Uh, so we lived there for seven years, and we started to develop a, a really good relationship with our next-door neighbors. They, were, they became pretty good friends of ours. And even at the end, we, we actually got them to come to church with us one time. So it was, we were making some inroads there. And the relationship that was forming there was one that I had hoped would end in, in his repentance and faithful obedience to Christ, to be honest with you. Yet we also shared this retaining wall that was showing signs of age. And I just knew, I was, I was, I was sure in looking at it, that it wasn't going to hold up. And I was sure that it was needed to be replaced pretty soon. So pretty early on, I started testing the waters. I started asking him, um, so, uh, you know, what do you think? Uh, how, how would we go about, how would one, if there was a retaining wall that one shared and needed to be replaced, how would one go about doing that? And what would you think about this retaining wall? And so on and so forth. And I got the sense that he was none too excited about the idea of replacing a retaining wall. Who is? It's like buying new tires. It's not a great purchase. It's just one of those adult things you have to do, right? Um, so we're thinking about it, and I can kind of get the sense that he might put up a little bit more of a fight than I was wanting. So as a Christian, seeking to obey Christ here, what do you do? I'll tell you what I did. I moved to Alabama. <laughs> yeah. That's the reason I'm here. I don't know if you knew. <laughs> Dodge that bullet. 
<laughs> the next guy's problem. Now, um, now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't try diplomacy, that you shouldn't sit down and negotiate, and you shouldn't make a deal between two parties. I'm just asking you to consider, do you always fight for your rights? Do you always fight for what's rightfully yours? Because it's rightfully mine. That's why I'm entitled to it. Do you ever consider how this conflict might ruin an opportunity for evangelism? Do you ever think about that? Are you ever the one that gets the short end of the stick? Or are you bound to determine that you're never going to get the short end of the stick? Do you always look to settle the score when you're deprived of your rights? Third, personal retaliation is not fitting for us in spite of imposition. In spite of imposition, look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So there was a a first century uh, Roman practice of commandeering civilians and forcing them to carry gear. And I think we see this in Jesus' own crucifixion where the Roman soldiers forced Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross. I think it's the same thing. And I think that's probably the reference that Jesus is making here. So here Jesus is, is making this statement to those that would follow him. If a Roman soldier forces you to carry his gear, even if it's for a mile, go too. There is a, a, an imposition that's being placed on the Christ follower. But what's the nature of his response to this imposition? One of grace and mercy and kindness. It's a person that is more than happy to render aid and quite literally go the extra mile. This is is really a question of how do you respond when faced with an imposition? To put this in modern terms, going back to the neighbor, if your neighbor forces you to mow the strip of grass between the property, mow his whole yard. It's the idea. The basic premise here is that opposition is really an opportunity for you to blow someone away with kindness. That's what's happening here. How do you handle imposition? Do you see it as an opportunity to go above and beyond? Or are you merely looking to do the bare minimum? See, Jesus doesn't mention the motive of the one imposing on you. It could be for very bad reasons. He may have a very bad motive. He may be looking to rib you. He may be looking to just really get your goat, so to speak. He may be looking to punish you for something that he feels like he has the power to do. He may be looking at really bad things. He may be very sinful in his motivations. Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't even mention it. Have you ever hit a punching bag? punching bag is firm, it's solid, it's meant to give you some resistance. And if you hit hard enough, you're going to need to put on gloves because you'll break your hand. It gives you so much resistance. At least I would. But I'm a weenie, so I get it. But it would break your hand if you hit it hard enough. You need to wear gloves. You need to have some sort of something to soften the blow. 
Have you ever hit a pillow? A pillow provides almost no resistance. But you will tire quickly because it absorbs every blow. And at the end of the fight, it's taken every single blow and it's no worse for the wear. And you're exhausted. The character on display from the Christian here is one that absorbs even evil motives behind the imposition and returns kindness and grace and mercy instead of a broken hand. Are you a punching bag or a pillow? Sometimes we're only satisfied. It brings us great joy down deep in our soul when what we return from the blow of imposition is a broken hand. We look at the person and we say, yeah, they got me, but I got the better of them. Yeah, they got me, but do you see what they're paying for it? You see what, what it cost them? It cost them their hand. And we get some joy from that. That sense of retaliation. But brothers and sisters, this is the dross that God is burning off of us. His grace to us is that over time He replaces that desire with the desire to see our enemies won over by grace and by mercy and by love instead of retaliation. So that what we find joy in is not a broken hand. It's in repentance and faith to God the Father because of the way we responded. Fourth, personal retaliation is not fitting for us in spite of deception. In spite of deception. Look at verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So a couple of illustrations back. Jesus depicted us as the borrower. Uh, someone sues you for your tunic and you give him your cloak. You're the borrower. You're the poor one in that scenario. But now he depicts us as the lender, the one who actually has something that someone would, that people would be wanting. And he puts no restrictions on it whatsoever. He doesn't say any, any kind of restriction here. Give to the beggar and do not refuse the borrower, he says. Now, this is certainly a very interesting illustration that Jesus uses here. In the first three illustrations, you get impositions, you get things that are not comfortable, but as tough as they may be, you can presumably still feed your family. Here he gives you the kind of imposition that really could take all of your money. Particularly if you work in a downtown area where there's lots of panhandlers, you see lots of them every day, you walk by them all the time. Or maybe if you work in a church where people come in and the next day there's two and the next day there's three and the next day there's four and on and on and on it goes. This can get really expensive for you. Not many can actually fulfill this in any way of giving every dollar that you have. I think this illustration is probably with intention the most impractical of the four because all of us face it in one way or another. Is Jesus expecting that every beggar the disciple passes in the cities, which, mind you, in his day would have been many, many people, is he expecting them to give to each one that they pass? 
to dole out money dollar after dollar to each one that they pass. I don't think Jesus' agenda here is to make sure that the poor are always cared for. I don't think that's his purpose in saying, you give to everyone because I want to be sure that the poor are cared for. I think he does want to make sure that the poor are cared for, and he will say that, don't get me wrong, but I think his agenda in saying this is not about the poor, but about the disciple. What is he wanting his disciples to be? And I think the answer is he wants his disciples to be generous. Generosity can be troubling, though, can it? Because when you're, when you're generous, you're bound to be taken advantage of. It's going to happen. You're going to be taken advantage of. There's going to come a point where either the borrower doesn't pay you back or the poor person uses the money that you gave him to buy alcohol or other nefarious things. And you look at that and you say, I was taken advantage of. I was, I was told this and I, 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 it wasn't true. And so what do you do when that happens? You stop giving, don't you? Remember, Jesus started this whole thing with talking about retaliation. So how do you retaliate against the poor person? You take it out on the next poor person that comes along, don't you? That's what you do. You say, I've been burned one too many times. I was told last time this same story, and, and it, it, that wasn't true. And so you're telling me this story, and I know that's not true. Now, there's several proverbs that warn us about the wisdom or the foolishness of giving money all the time. So proverbs 11, 15, 17, 18, and 22, 26, to name a few. You can read those later. Proverbs 11, 15, 17, 18, 22, 26. And we have to take those into account, too. We can't just adhere to one verse of Scripture legalistically and ignore the rest of the teaching of the Bible. But also notice that Jesus doesn't necessarily reference money in verse 42. Now, I think that's primarily what he's talking about, though there could be many ways to give to the person that begs from you. There could be many ways in which you help him out. For instance, Peter and John are walking into the temple in Acts chapter 3, and a beggar asks them for money, and Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you, and he heals him on the spot. Now, none of us in this room are going to say, yeah, Peter, I know you healed him. You disobeyed Jesus there, because he asked for money, and you didn't give it to him. Right? Nobody's going to think that of Peter. He gave to him a better gift. He was even more generous than the person is asking him to be. He gave him the gift of his legs back. He can work and he can, he can afford to live himself. And that's a great gift. But once again here, I think Jesus is drilling down to the heart of the disciple. How easily are you to dismiss the poor person or the beggar without giving him aid? particularly because of the last person that cheated you over. In spite of the fact that I've heard this story a thousand times, you're coming from X, you're going to Y, and here you're in my town, and you're out of gas. Anybody ever heard that story before? I've heard it a million times, if I've heard it one time. It's the same story. But how easily are we to dismiss the person as a con artist, simply because... Some of those other stories did not come true. Can we still give aid to this person that's asking us for it? I think we can. And I think Jesus tells us it's our 
obligation to. The question is, are we characterized by stinginess or generosity? Now, generosity may come about in many other ways, more than even just money. But it certainly does pertain to money as well. All of us have within us the capacity for retaliation. And the desire for retaliation. The tendency to retaliate. All of us have within us that same capacity that would go out and poison a tree because of a minor offense. There is satisfaction in seeing people get what's coming to them. In revenge. The illustrations that Jesus gives here are just that. They're illustrations. And there are millions more that he could have given. There are millions more things that we could talk about. Time would fail us if we were to cover all of them for sure. But to give one last image, to give one last thought in your mind of how do we know what kind of attitude that Jesus is truly driving for here? What kind of, what kind of person does he really want me to be? Am I sure about my translation here? Am I sure about my interpretation of the scripture? How do I know that Jesus really wants me to be this kind of person as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Well, because by the end of this gospel, we're going to watch Jesus not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. Isaiah 53 says he, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like, sheep, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is going to be falsely accused in a kangaroo court. He is going to literally be slapped on the cheek. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be spat upon. And yet he is not going to open his mouth in defense. He's not going to resist the ones that are intending to do him evil. But he's going to suffer at their hands that he might become overcome their sinful opposition to God with mercy and grace and love. That's what he's going to do. On the cross, he's going to suffer the wrath of God for your sins and for my sins. Brothers and sisters, which one of us in this room can look at Jesus' teaching on retaliation and walk away and think, we've got this one owned. I am rocking this one. I don't know about the rest of them, but man, I am really great at that one. Jesus is laying out here what true heavenly righteousness looks like as a heavenly citizen living in a, citizen, in a, in a sinful world. And who's better than Jesus, who is literally a citizen of heaven living in a sinful world? If you walk away from the Sermon on the Mount thinking you're pretty awesome, you're not looking at your life deep enough. No, the truth is that we're not nice people. And on Judgment Day, we're all going to be guilty of a thousand transgressions that Jesus lays out here, of the expectations that Jesus lays out here. We need someone to stand in our place. We have to have it. If this is true righteousness, I fall short. If this is heavenly righteousness, I haven't made it. 
I need someone to stand in my place. As the author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. Christian, God is not finished with you yet. If you're feeling discouraged and thinking, man, I've only ever sought retaliation. God is not finished with you yet. He's conforming you and your retaliatory attitude into the image of Christ until you respond to all situations as Christ does. Now, some of you have good reason to feel as though you should be able to seek retribution. There were offenses that were done to you that were heinous. People have really done you wrong. But remember, it's not as though retaliation doesn't come. It's just not yours to give. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's God's and God's alone. Listen, if there truly is hell to pay for someone's sins against you, I hate to break it to you, Christian, but you're ill-equipped to give it. You cannot give hell to somebody, even though that may be the only punishment fitting for the crime. You can't do it. And all we are is the younger sibling who's standing over there. You know what I'm talking about? You're getting on to the older sibling, and the younger sibling standing over there and going, yeah, and you should also remember he did this. Remember what he did to me yesterday? God is turning to us and saying, listen, be quiet. I don't need your help. far worse would be condemning those that God has called righteous. Is your standard of justice exceeding God's standard? Now, He's called them righteous, but but you're going to punish them? My encouragement to you would be to give the offender to God. And let your heavenly Father deal with them as he may. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust you. We know that your word is true and right. That it's for our edification, for our building up. But it's hard. It's difficult sometimes. And we truly recognize that we're incapable. And it's a reminder yet again of why our righteousness is insufficient and why we need Christ. Gratitude doesn't begin to express the feeling that we have for what Christ has given to us. What you have given to us through your Son. Father, we pray for patience to deal with those that impose upon us, frustrate us, 
hurt our feelings. We pray, pray that we would deal with them in grace and mercy and love. And that like Jesus, we would open not our mouth. That we would turn them over to you and entrust that your justice is better than ours. Whatever, that may, whatever may happen. And in the meantime, we sit in satisfaction knowing we, see, we serve a God that sees all, that knows all, that nothing escapes your notice. And we're grateful that we don't receive what rightfully should be coming to us. We're grateful for that. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.